Well, good morning, everybody. Such a beautiful day and fine singing, good music. So today we want to look at a large section about the resurrection from the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to call it good news from the other side. The other side, of course, is the other side of this life, the other side of death. And that has been, continues to be, you know, the the great question mark, one of the big issues that we wrestle with in life, even when it's not on the front of our minds, it's in the back of our minds. So the Bible says that through fear of death, people are in bondage all of their lives. And uh, death brings that threat to us, and it's particularly hard because nobody's been to the other side, right, to tell us what it's like. So through the ages, people have speculated, what happens when we die? Are we simply extinguished like a candle in the wind? That's a, that's a modern view. That's not an ancient view. <clears throat> or, uh, or do we exist in some kind of a ghostly shade, a disembodied spirit? Or, uh, or perhaps we, <clears throat> we simply get absorbed into some kind of larger reality like a, a drop of rainwater falling into the ocean. That's numerous Eastern religions, Buddhism, right? Impersonal existence. And then there was this little group of people, the Jewish people, who got the idea that beyond death, there was going to be a resurrection, a return to our bodies. And that would happen at the end of history. God would, in fact, raise up the dead in bodily form to stand before him to be evaluated in terms of how they had used and invested the life he gave them. That would be the final judgment. But, but even what they have to say about it is, is not very clear. There's not been news from the other side. Except, of course, in, in one situation. And that's what Easter is about. Easter is about someone who returns from the other side to give us good news, gospel. That's what that old English term meant, right? It meant a a good tale, a good story. Well, there's a good story, Paul says, from the other side. That's what he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So we're going to look at part of it this morning. Follow along. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, this good story that I preached to you which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. 
For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter's other name, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. This is about 25 years later. Most are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. But... If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Apparently, there were some in Corinth who acknowledged that Jesus had been raised from the dead, but they didn't think that believers would be raised from the dead. They believed there was some kind of spiritual resurrection, but not a physical resurrection. Well, Paul says... We believe that Christ is raised from the dead, then how can we deny the, resurrection, the general resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, that is of dead believers, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we're talking about good news. And the good news is large. The gospel is a big story. In some sense, it's the whole story of the Bible. It's from the beginning from creation right through to the end, to the new creation that, that Scripture promised. The gospel in the broad sense says that God has not given up on the world that has rebelled against him. And he promises one day to make everything new. That's the gospel in the broad sense. That's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the gospel of the kingdom of God. God will Reign, or as Paul says here, he must reign, Christ must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. That's a broad sense of the gospel, but, but there's a, 
a focus sense. In that great story of Scripture, there's a focus sense that we talk about as gospel, what we might call the heart of the gospel, when we don't have time to talk about the whole story. How do we summarize and focus this good tale? And the heart of the gospel, Paul says, is the death and resurrection of the Messiah. He says in these verses, I delivered to you what I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. I delivered this to you, he says, as of first importance. This is the crucial thing. I've used this picture before because to me it is... uh, It's such a good image to capture the heart of the gospel. We had a similar picture on uh, one of the songs a few minutes ago. It's the the view of the cross from the door of an ancient cave tomb. It's It's that combination of the two things Paul talks about, the death and resurrection of the Messiah. The tomb is now open as the women found it to be on that first Easter morning. The tomb is open. The body of Jesus is gone. So it's death, burial, and resurrection, an empty tomb. That is the heart of of the gospel. This is of first importance. Paul says this is what you need to take your stand on. This is where our hope rests, that the Messiah has come and he has laid down his life for us. And as he said before he went to the cross, I lay down my life that I may take it again. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. And so he does, and we celebrate that on Easter morning. Paul says that that this word from the other side, that the Messiah has taken up his life once more, he says that this is clearly supported by two witnesses. The first is the witness of Scripture. And you remember that uh, for, the, for the early Christians, the first disciples, Scripture means simply what we call the Old Testament. Paul is here writing 25 years after the resurrection, and there is still no New Testament as we would call it. The Bible for these early Christians are the, they summarize it, the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And this scripture, given centuries before, Paul says, testifies to the reality of the death and resurrection of the Messiah. This is of first importance, he says. I gave it to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, the disciples 
didn't understand that before the cross, did they? We, we talked last week about the triumphal entry, <clears throat> Jesus coming to Jerusalem a week ago now, and the disciples being quite uncomprehending about what was going to happen, even though he told them, we're going up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be killed, <clears throat> and then he'll rise again, and, and they have no way to conceive that. It's so out of bounds for the traditional understanding of the Messiah. But afterwards, after his death and resurrection, Jesus appears, and right from the start, you can read this, Luke gives us the, the largest uh, discussion of this, right from the start, he begins to teach his disciples that his death and resurrection was part of what the prophets had foreseen. And that's important for us. I, I think that, that argument was very clear in the book of Acts that when the apostles went out to preach to their Jewish fellow citizens that what they did was to go with Scripture and say, here's what Scripture says. Don't you understand that this is what the Messiah has fulfilled? He's died and he's been raised again from the dead. That was very powerful. I don't think it's as powerful today, at least for most people, because we live in a very anti-supernaturalistic culture and the idea that there is a God who speaks ahead of time what he is going to do, that's pretty foreign to most people. Although I still think that if folks would actually give attention to what the prophets said, there are some texts like Isaiah 53 that are, uh, are just pretty hard to understand if you don't understand them in the light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But for the, for the early believers, this, this is it. It's the witness of the Old Testament. And then with that, of course, there's the witness of the disciples themselves. Paul, in the passage we just read, gives the longest list of witnesses that we have anywhere in the New Testament, especially when you know, he mentions the 500 gathered disciples at one point. They're all together, and they encounter the risen Messiah. And along with some others that uh, we don't normally uh, think of. But all four of the Gospels are clear in this that Jesus appeared and was seen by his followers. And they weren't, they weren't gullible people, you know. They were, they were Jews, after all. And, and in their understanding... Resurrection, I mean, they were the folks that brought the idea of resurrection, right? But their understanding of resurrection was that there's one general resurrection at the end of history. That's when God will raise up the dead and judge them and separate the righteous from the unrighteous. That's, resurrection is something they expect, but they don't expect it now. And they certainly have no idea 
that along with that general resurrection at the end of history, there is going to be a situation in the middle of history where a single person is going to be raised from the dead. That is not on their screen at all. So these aren't gullible people who are saying, boy, I hope he comes back from the dead. He was so important to us. God, God must, God's certainly going to do something. You know, maybe God's going to raise him from the dead, and, and then they have some kind of a visionary encounter. That's not who these people were. But they meet him, and there's this mystery about the resurrection and the resurrection body that we are not going to penetrate, I guess, until we experience it ourselves. And that is that Jesus returns from the dead, and he's the same, but he's different. That's, that's part of the mystery, right? So, so when they first encounter him, at least for some of them, they don't know who he is. Here's, uh, here's the Emmaus Road account that we have in Luke 24. Two disciples walking to the town of Emmaus, seven or eight miles away from Jerusalem, Easter morning. And they are talking about the death of the one they thought was the Messiah. And all of a sudden, somebody joins them on the road and uh, starts asking them questions and uh, then starts talking about the Old Testament and expounding to them what it says about the Messiah. And we find this is Jesus teaching, teaching them right away how to read their scriptures. But they don't recognize him at first. <clears throat> they don't recognize him until that evening when they sit together and he breaks bread. And then, somehow, they understand who he is. And later that evening, he appears to the twelve, and, and they're not sure either. But that's when he says, it's me. <laughs> Look at my hands and feet. Look at the scars. <clears throat> so he, this resurrection body is recognizable for certain things that <clears throat> stand in continuity with what took place on our side, right? But there's some difference as well. And in, later in this chapter, Paul actually talks about that. He says there's, a, there's an earthly body and there's a spiritual body. But it's a real body. And so Jesus can say, touch me and see, because a, a spirit or a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as, as you see that I have. So this is the heart of the gospel. <clears throat> And we keep those together. I think there's a tendency in many Christians, to a great extent through the history of the church, to focus on the cross to the neglect of the resurrection. Uh, years ago, when I was uh, teaching this in theology, I was, uh, I was teaching about the cross and the death of Jesus and what it meant. And I found out that in the theological text, there's tons of material about what the cross means and what it signifies. And then it's, okay, well, now I have to teach about the resurrection. And all of a sudden, there was an absence of material. Even among Christian theologians. For some reason, we've given much more attention to the cross than we have to the resurrection. 
but scripturally, they're held together, right? Just as we see in that picture previously. All right, so that's the heart of the gospel. Paul then wants to talk to us a little bit about why the resurrection is so necessary for us to hold together with the cross. Why death and resurrection? And there's two things at least that he says here. He says that the resurrection is necessary for our faith and our hope. Listen to this in verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. You're still facing the judgment of God if Christ hasn't been raised up. So how's he thinking about this? Well, he's thinking about the biblical story and how sin is always linked with death. Right? Right back to the beginning of the story, the Lord says to our first parents as he places them in that garden to care for it and to tend it, he says, you can eat from every tree in the garden except one. And the day you eat from that tree is the day that death will become your experience. Sin and death are linked directly in Paul's mind. <clears throat> so in the letters to the Romans, he says, as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death spread to all people because all sinned. Sin and death are connected. So, our faith and our hope <clears throat> is empty. It's futile if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. What's the thinking? <clears throat> the thinking is this. The Messiah came to deal with our sin problem. He came to lay down his life for me and for you. In dealing with our sins, he also deals with our problem of death because the two are linked. But Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then the conclusion we need to draw is that whatever he did on the cross was not adequate to deal with the problem of our sins. Our sin then <clears throat> is still in control. If on Sunday morning that tomb is not empty, Paul says, your faith is futile. What about hope? Hope, I usually say, is faith turned toward the future. It's what we look for God to do. So Paul also talks about hope here. He says, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Or as he says later on in the chapter, if the dead are, if the dead are not raised, then Christ isn't raised. Let us eat and drink and be merry. 
He doesn't say be merry, but he says, let's eat and drink because tomorrow it's the end. So as the ad says, grab all the gusto you can. That makes sense if there's no resurrection. But Paul says Christ has been raised. It's necessary that the tomb is empty if we are to have faith and to have hope. But it's also necessary for the victory of God. God's purpose from Genesis 1 on is that the world, the creation, should exist under his good governance with human beings like you and me as his partners. Know all that partnership stuff we talked about? You and I are called to reign with the Messiah. And so if God is to have his victory to reclaim the world for himself, then it's necessary that Christ be raised from the dead. So he says, for he, the Messiah, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, where, where does he get this notion from? He gets it from Psalm 110.1, which is the most popular scripture verse for the early church as they think about what Jesus has done. Psalm 110, they understood to be a reference to the Messiah. It starts out this way, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, you can see that's the verse that Paul is alluding to here in 1 Corinthians. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus rises, and in his rising, he inaugurates the reign of God, the kingdom of God, the reclaiming of a fallen creation. He's exalted to the Father's right hand. He is king. He appears to his disciples. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go. Announce the good news. The victory has been achieved in principle already because he himself has risen and broken the bond between sin and death. But, uh, but it hasn't yet been broken in our lives, has it? Because, uh, <clears throat> believe it or not, we're all in the process of dying, my friends. We're just different places along the road, but we're all in the process of dying. But the resurrection of Jesus says that that process will be arrested. Jesus will reign to the point where all his enemies will be submitted under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. Not his death, but my death and your death. That's the final enemy. And the resurrection is necessary for that final victory of God. Well, and there's one last thing here that is uh, 
is pretty remarkable, I think. And let's see if we can get our heads around it. And that's Paul's use of this word, first fruits. Twice he says, Christ is the first fruits. Verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, there's, there's a couple Old Testament celebrations here we need to keep in our mind to understand what Paul's notion is. And the two are Passover and first fruits. Passover is the yearly celebration of Israel's exodus from Egypt. Remember, they've been in slavery in Egypt, and, and God initiates through Moses a series of ten horrible judgments upon Egypt to, to break the will of Pharaoh, to let the people go. And the, the last of those ten judgments is the judgment of the death angel. The death angel is going to pass through Egypt and take the life of all the firstborn. But, Moses says to the people, there'll be an exception. In the house, in the homes of the Israelites, if they take a lamb and slaughter it, and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the frame of the doorpost. Then when the death angel comes through and sees the blood, he will pass over those homes. And it was the next day then that Pharaoh let the Israelites go. That's Passover. Celebrated uh, every year, even up to the present, by Jewish people. Remember... We talked about it last week. Jesus rides into the city, and he is actually orchestrating the events of Passion Week. And he's orchestrating them in such a way that he makes sure that his death, his crucifixion, coincides with the celebration of Passover. In fact, as he and his disciples celebrate Passover, what does he say to them? He takes bread and he says, this is my body for you. He takes the cup and says, this is the cup of the new covenant. This blood is shed for you. So he clearly coordinates his death with the death of the Passover lamb. And Paul understands this. Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's what Good Friday is about. All right, now what, what about this next one, first fruits? Well, here's Leviticus 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. First fruits is a harvest celebration. Beginning of the barley harvest, that's the first grain to be reaped in Israel. And as the Israelites gathered the sheaves, the first of the sheaves were not for them, but for the Lord. And they brought the sheaves as an offering, gave it to the priests, and the priest offered it up before the Lord. And there's a deep symbolism there. The deep symbolism is that God the Creator is the one who provides for His people. 
as people in response live in faith and trust that God will indeed provide for them, and they live thankfully, so when they get the first part of the grain, they bring it to the Lord in thankfulness, in acknowledgement, in acknowledgement that they trust that the rest of the harvest is going to follow. That's the principle of first fruits. Uh, it's still worth thinking about today because most people function from last fruits. They, they spend their time and their talents and their treasure on everything from them, and then they say, well, you know, if I have a little bit left, I'll give it to the Lord. But the Israelites were told to do the opposite. They were to give from first fruits, and so they offered up the grain. Well, now, let's, uh, let's understand the calendar here. When is Passover? So on the first day, it's on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. It's the month of Nisan. So 14 Nisan, Passover. And uh, we understand, there's some debate on it, but I think it pretty comfortably say that, that Jesus died on a Friday. And it was Passover. So the date is 14th Nisan, right? When was first fruits? First fruits was two days later, 16th Nisan. Both of these, Passover and first fruits, were part of a week long celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We don't have time to deal with that, but, but that, was the, that was the connection. 14th Nisan, that's a Friday. Then Saturday would be what? It's not a trick question. 15th Nisan, right? Sunday, 16th Nisan. So think about this. On the day that the women went to the tomb to prepare the body of Jesus for burial, they found it empty. On that same day, what were the priests doing? They were offering up a sacrifice from the beginning of the barley harvest. And what did that sacrifice say to the Israelites, it said, the full harvest is coming. Now listen to what Paul says. Paul who thinks this calendar, I mean, this, this is his life, right? He's a Pharisee, former Pharisee. Paul says, now Christ has been raised from the dead. On the first day of the week, 16th Nisan, the first fruits of those that sleep. Jesus is the beginning of the great harvest. Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of those that sleep, those who are dead. He's the first fruits, which means 
in Jewish understanding, that the full harvest is still ahead. The full harvest is when our turn comes, my friends. I kind of like this cartoon. I don't know if you can read it from deck there. It's a picture of the empty tomb, and the sign says, more to come. Please be patient. Being patient is what Christian hope is about. Huh? It's waiting for God, the faithful God, to fulfill his promises, to bring in the full harvest of salvation, which will include all those who trust in him, will include not just your spirit, but your body, because that's full salvation. That occurs at the end of history, when Jesus returns, the dead are raised, and God's judgment comes, and those who are in Christ are finally fully saved. That's why the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says that as Christians, we not only believe in life after death, we believe in life after life after death. You get what he means? He's saying that when believers die, they're present with the Lord. Paul says, that's better far than what we have here. But that's not the end, my friends. That is not full salvation. Full salvation is when the Messiah returns and we are raised up to be with him not just in some spiritual existence, but full bodily life as God intended it from the beginning. We believe in life after life after death. That's the good news from the other side, my friends. The good news that Jesus has been raised, but there's more to come. So as you live in this body of weakness and sickness and ultimately death in this life, you live in hope. Hope that what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection is a full, complete, and perfect answer to all the sin and the brokenness that not only our world is experiencing, but that we experience in ourselves. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray and we'll sing. Lord, this morning, it's so refreshing to fix our hearts and minds on the reality of your life beyond the grave, that you reign and you will reign until all your enemies are placed beneath your feet and, and the last enemy to be destroyed will be death itself. God, what, what hope you have given to us, your people. May we live as people who take our stand on the gospel, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. This God is, this is the center. This is what we want to build our lives around. And thus, as Paul says to us, be steadfast, unmovable, knowing that our life and our labor in the Lord is not empty, it's not vain, it's founded on a sure and certain hope. We thank you this day for the reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.